Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. The show is four years old now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before we start, I'm delighted that the headline sponsor for this series of the podcast and the Material Matters Fair is Bert Frank. The company crafts beautiful lighting to order from its manufacturing base in Birmingham using traditional methods paired with the latest technology. Skilled craftsmen rely on their years of expertise and the finest quality materials to produce timeless investment pieces that will last a lifetime. Going to great lengths to ensure all clients can rely on the bespoke service and a unique, beautifully engineered product. I'm delighted that my guest this week is Ndidi Akubia. Ndidi creates extraordinary, almost liquid-looking vessels from silver. She graduated from the University of Wolverhampton in 1995 before going on to the Royal College of Art. Since then, her work has been shown internationally at exhibitions such as TFAF in Maastricht, Masterpiece in London and Pavilion of Art and Design in New York. Her pieces are held in Winchester Cathedral, Aberdeen Art Gallery and Museum and the Osmolian Museum in Oxford. Currently, she has a series of vessels in Mirror Mirror, a new exhibition at Chatsworth House that also contains furniture, lighting, ceramics and sculpture from designers such as Fernando Lapos, Samuel Ross, Faye Tugard and Atore Sotsas. Ndidi was awarded an MBE in 2017 for services to silversmithing. Ndidi, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm very well. Good. And it's good to talk to you here. It's nice to see you. (laughs) Um, Was that all reasonably accurate? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, a lot of it is uh, a long time ago, but (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what wasn't a long time ago, and that was uh, Mirror Mirror, which maybe we can talk about in the first instance. It's at Chatsworth House in the Derbyshire Dales. It's been co-curated by former Material Matters guest Glenn Adamson. And the thinking behind it, as far as I can understand, is to reflect on 500 years of creativity and innovation at the house. So can you tell me a little bit about your, your installation in Didi? What have you done there and, and why? Because your pieces are in a, a state closet, I understand. That's correct. Glenn had a clear idea of where he could see work of mine in Chatsworth. So when I saw images of the room, well, first of all, I thought, wow, it's quite dark. And, you know, <laughs> it's quite, it's way, way back in, you know, you have to get, it's quite a journey to get there. But then when I saw the room itself and what it contained, it had a beautiful chandelier and a mirror, a huge mirror, an antique mirror in the room. And I just thought, I know why he's kind of chosen that space and stuff. And what interested me was the um, porcelain that was uh, arranged on some of the furniture in there. And it was like groups of different sizes. And along Mm. the wall, there was a lot of pieces so different sizes and different objects all grouped together. And I thought, oh, that, that looks amazing. You know, that looks great. You know, different age, different parts of history and stuff like that. So I thought, oh, it'd be nice if I could create a group myself mm. within that room. Yeah, have different sizes, different pieces and things like that. You created a garniture. I think it's a technical phrase for it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then um, silver's, you know, very reflective. You know, it can sparkle in a... A darker room so I was quite excited to be able to get a group together that 
fitted in quite well. Mm, well, it looks beautiful. I mean, are you aware when you're doing a show like that or an installation like that of what the other designers and makers are, are up to in, in the various rooms across Chatsworth? Not at all. I didn't know any of the artists actually that were part of that group. I was lucky enough to go to the opening and meet a lot of them. So there was a lot of British artists, but a lot of international artists as well. Just to see the range of work and the materials that they were using, for me, that's like it's inspirational really. And, and also just nice to be able to talk to them about what they're up to and how they use their materials and things like that. Mm. On this podcast, we have a, a long-held tradition of, of trying to give the listener a sense of context. We're speaking over Zoom, and because of Wi-Fi issues, I suspect you're at home. But maybe for the listener, you could describe the environment in which you work. What does your studio look like? Um, there's a lot of wood in the workshop. So I have quite a lot of logs, and attached to those logs is uh, heavy vices. Right. And uh, to be honest, that's mainly where I do my work. So in the vice, what I would put is um, a heavy steel tool, which is called a stake, what I would use to help me form the silver or metal that I'm using. So there's a lot of hammers, a lot of steel, wood. It's not very tidy. <laughs> it's very <laughs> it's very dangerous as well, actually, because if you drop a lot of the tools, they're quite heavy and stuff. And then my desk as well. My desk is the old traditional jeweler's silversmith bench, which is cut out and it has a fork at the front so you can lean on. Right. I love my workshop, to be honest. And as many makers would probably say, I lo- absolutely love that environment. I love it. And do you work by yourself or do you share a studio space? How does that work? I work by myself at the moment. I used to have people working for me over the years and stuff like that. But at the moment, because I had a couple of children and I've moved to up north from London. Yes. Well, we'll get into that. Yeah. Because I've moved at the moment, I'm taking the advantage of just having my space to myself Mm. and hopefully, yeah, I will find some lovely makers to come and work for me again. I've been using outworkers, which is quite interesting. (laughs) I usually like to be in control of every stage myself. Mm. So mm. trusting somebody else to get involved in the making is quite difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. So how do you find your outworkers? At the moment, I've got this amazing, can I mention his name? Oh, well, I imagine. Yeah. It depends who it is. It's Oscar <laughs> Osarin, and he's amazing. Right. He's got such a fire in his belly. He's very good at what he does. I make the bodies of the work and he's been putting it together. He's very on it. He's young and he's got an amazing sort of energy, which I love working with, actually, to be honest. We're making a teapot at the moment. Oh, wow. Is that the first teapot you've done? No, it isn't. No, it's not, actually. No, I've done I've done it in the past as a commission. And I got a lovely Clive Burr to help me put it together. But this time, yeah, using Oscar to see how he can do it. And he's he's very on it. Good. We'll get into your background a bit later in DD in the interview. Why silver? What is it about that material? Why, why do you enjoy working with it? Silver is very forgiving. I don't know if that's the right word, but very forgiving. So, and it's very clean and it's, it moves beautifully. It has a real strength to it and it's kind of soft, but it's not. It right. holds its structure. So obviously when I start, it's a flat piece of sheet very machined. And then I use my hammers to start to shape it, to dish it out and things like that. So as soon as you start to dish it out, it becomes quite soft and then hard. And then you kneel it and things like that. I love 
the way it moves. Mm. Once I'm into a piece, I get totally into a rhythm with it. I was going to ask you about that, <laughs> funnily enough. I've watched you work on a few YouTube clips and it is a really rhythmical process, essentially you and a hammer and the silver. I'm wondering what you're thinking about when you're doing that. Initially, you're in the background. I'm thinking, is it moving right? Am I hammering? Am I in good position? And I'm listening to the sound of the metal hit the stake and the hammer hit the silver. By doing that, I'm making sure that I'm actually moving it in the correct way and not torturing mm. the material. Not torturing the material. Yes. I quite like that as an expression. Yeah, absolutely. Because... How do you know if you're not torturing it? Uh, it sounds very wrong. <laughs> it sounds wrong. <laughs> you know, um, obviously when I'm teaching somebody how to raise something, yeah, yeah, it can be very painful, you know, <laughs> stuff. and it takes a while to get that sort of rhythm and also the right noise and stuff. Mm. I'm bearing in mind what I'm trying to achieve. So for me, I'm always in a rush. I've got the drawing next to me, what I'm trying to achieve. So I'm always constantly checking that it's going correctly and moving quite fast, actually, quite basically, mm. <laughs> and the rest mm. of it. I mean, you seem to hit the silver from watching you on YouTube. You seem to hit the silver in sets of three. Yeah. Is that always the case? No, it isn't. When I teach, it is because it's a good way to keep it under control. But for me, because I've been doing it for quite some time and I'm kind of rushing, I could be just constantly hitting it, but still getting that two on air, one on metal, two on air, one on metal. So the two on air doesn't quite hit the stake. And then that last hit hits the actual stake. And that's the way I was taught by the lovely Rod Kelly. And so it sticks with me now. And I still teach that same method. Mm. But if I'm in a rush, I'm just hit, 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 hit. But I'm getting those still, missing those, you know, two on air, one on metal in that rhythm. I'm interested in your comment about rushing because lots of other, particularly makers I talk to, they talk about getting into a meditative state when they're working. Is that the case for you if you're rushing? Yep, definitely. Yeah, no, sometimes I'll be listening to music. Sometimes I'll be watching something, but not really watching it. Just get into it. And if you've got a longer period of time, yes, it is a meditative state, definitely, without a doubt. Mm. And it's obviously because I've been doing it for so long, you know, it's 20 years plus now doing that same sort of thing. When I say I'm in a rush, somebody else will probably think, oh, you know, oh, <laughs> she's, she's getting carried away. <laughs> but for me, it's like driving a car. You kind of know what you're meant to be doing. So yeah. you just do it. Hope so. Hope so. <laughs> no, but I must admit, I got the opportunity to be in Rod Kelly's workshop for a little while and I was raising something and he was like, gosh, that's loud. <laughs> you don't have to hit it that hard. <laughs> so, I was going to say, you're hitting it too hard. Yeah. And so, you know, and, listen, and hearing him say that made me think, oh, actually, you know what? <laughs> I don't need to hit it, you know, I'm whacking it. I don't really, I can actually just calm and relax. But you're not torturing it. Not that's, torturing that's the material. You hit it hard without torturing. <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. So was, that was quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> You've kind of talked a little bit, but what's your process? Take those pieces um, that you did for Mirror Mirror. Would you start with a drawing? Where does the process start? Yeah, it starts with a drawing, an idea, a shape. Maybe I think about the texture or if it's got a function, think about the function, how it's going to work, work out how much material I need, then obviously take the material and start to shape it with the hammers and things like that. Then I mm. end up with a shell, which is a quite a clear form. 
Then I'd map on that shell and then I would um, draw the design into it. So I'd put dark lines and then I'd use different hammers to sort of put grooves to mark up those lines that I've put. I'm always using the drawings that I have as a, a reference. It may change because it's not working or it may change because it doesn't look good or the function's not quite right or whatever. So uh, yeah, there's a bit of flexibility there. And that's it really. And uh, yeah, so I'll literally start off with the basic form, then planish it so it's nice and smooth. Then you draw the pattern on. So hang on, we need to do some jargon busting. Oh, right. <laughs> planishing. Oh, yeah. Planishing for listeners who might not know. What is that? Planishing is smoothing out the material. So making it okay. nice and smooth. And I do that quite a lot. So I've gotten... How do you do that? There's a particular hammer, it's like a round hammer. Right. I would literally be hammering straight onto the surface and it would be direct actual hit. So the metal would be over a particular stake and it would be metal on metal the whole time. So it would be constant. Right. So I'm flattening out the surface completely. So it's so it's like a clear form. And then once I've got that perfect or what's the way I want it, then I draw on lines of the pattern that I'm trying to create. And then I'd use a different hammer, which would probably be like a raisin hammer to put grooves in to start to push and pull the material to get the texture of the outside of the vessel and stuff like that. It's literally just you and a variety of different hammers and a stake. In other Pretty ways. much, yeah. And obviously the torch plays a very important part because obviously in between every course of hammering, I am using a torch to anneal it, which is to soften the material right and then the metal has a memory oh that's interesting how does that work any sort of like mark you make on the material it has a memory sometimes i've made pieces and thought i absolutely don't like that i have to change it <sighs> but it still has the memory of what i've put there beforehand so you have to work it quite a lot right to get that previous sort of marks out of it and stuff like that there are different types of silver and i think i'm right in saying that you work with britannia silver in the main so why that particular alloy as opposed to sterling silver, for example? Well, it's softer slightly, but it still has the strength of, say, sterling. So when I start to hammer it, it sort of um, moves more. But then as I work hard on it, it sort of like holds that strength and the marks that I put into it. And also it's got more silver content than sterling silver. So you get like a, it's like a whiter sort of um, colour to it. So you have sterling, you have Britannia, mm. and then you have fine silver. Fine silver is almost entirely yeah. silver, 99.9% silver, yeah. right? Yeah, it's 99, they could 999, they would say. Yeah, yeah. So the qualities of that are different from Britannia, how? It's really soft. So for me personally, I have made quite a few pieces in fine, but I find it quite grainy and it's harder to work because you have to work it more to sort of like get that strength into it and stuff like that. It moves too quickly for me. So it's not got that resistance that you would get from Tanya or Sterling. Uh, yeah, I, I have trouble with it. Not trouble, you know, um, but it, yeah, it's, it behaves differently. <laughs> I like a little bit of resistance and a little bit of control where okay. it's fine silver just goes for it. Bit unruly. Absolutely. <laughs> the notion of function is important to you. I don't know if people do use your pieces, but they could. Why does that matter? It was drilled into me when I was at the Royal College of Art. So the pieces that I was making before there were huge, big copper, gilding metal pieces. And they were like, okay, a piece cannot just sit on the table. You've got to make functional items. 
it's kind of drilled into me. And also for me, I love the idea of somebody using my objects. So you'd be surprised. People can just have them there to look at and things like that. But I get a lot of people who send me pictures of them on their tables, using them with food in, with flowers in, with candles, with all sorts of things like that. You know, things I've made a long time ago, people are saying, oh, I still use it, you know, which is for me is like, oh, that's like the best thing anybody could ever say to me about the work that I've made and things like that. And also you don't necessarily have to keep it shiny as well. You know, when you leave silver, and it sort of tarnishes. Sometimes you get these beautiful colours of purple hues and all sorts of different colours that you get into it and things like that. And then you could, you know, polish it up and then have it back to its sort of like silver colour. Mm. So, yeah, it's a real gift. Oh, yeah, the the wine cups are quite special because obviously everybody has a, a drink, whether it's water or wine. So the wine cups are quite special because people do use them all the time and stuff. I love the fact that people are in contact with you years after they've bought some of your work. Oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the work is quite personal to me and it's personal to them, whether it be commission or whether they've purchased something when I was at a show or anything like that. For me, it's like a bit of me they've taken away. Sometimes it's really difficult to let go of pieces and things like that you're overthinking it is that about letting it go for you or is that about it going to the right owner i wonder no 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 anybody can have it but anybody can have <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> um but um no it's for me to let go for me to let go mm. and stuff because i don't know with every artist i'm sure they think to themselves oh gosh i should have just have done this and oh should have you know and you just have to like finish and let go mm. and give it to somebody else and stuff like that um yeah you know i mean can we talk about your inspiration because it comes from nature but also your african heritage i mean the liquidity of your forms are are easy to see but can you identify where the sense of africa is coming into your work uh probably the boldness the pattern from memory you know my mum used to wear african dress all the time when i was little so if you see african material batik it's just full of pattern, repeated pattern and colour, and it's all bold and it's, you know, it's out there. So that's what I grew up with. Yeah, so for me, the link is the strength, the patterns. Yeah, it's just bold. There's no excuses there. This is what I'm doing. There's an interesting quote that I found. I think it's on Adrian Sassoon's website where you said, my nature is reflected through my work. So what does your work say about your nature? Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not so loud as I used to be, but I used to be like a right little show off. I was terrible. (laughs) I'd be out there. I'd be talking to people I don't even know. And I wasn't shy. I was kind of like, you know, yeah, just out there and making a fuss, being cheeky and stuff like that. So in the work, it's... (laughs) I mean, if you see the work, it's just there. The only thing I could remember was when I first did Goldsmiths Fair and I didn't even think about it. And I was putting all my work out on the shelves and stuff like that. And I didn't even think about it until I finished. And then I started looking around and thinking, oh my goodness, there's nothing in here like this. There's no, you know, and I had a panic attack. <laughs> I'm totally, you know, how are people going to sort of like, um, you know, take this work? But being in a situation like Goldsmiths Fair is absolutely amazing because people come in and they just start talking to you. 
they say, oh, what's this? And I'd be like, and then I'd just get into it, talking about my work and stuff and the ideas behind it and stuff. And I think they were used to think, oh my gosh, where does she come from? <laughs> yeah, that sort of like contact with people who are interested in your work is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing that comes up in the various clippings I have on you is this sense of order and chaos. There's a quote in House and Garden where you say, I'm quoting here, the material has a natural chaos, which I'm trying to order. Can we unpick that? What does that mean in Didi? So when I'm making an object, it's always trying to do something else. I'm trying to keep it under control. Sometimes I don't actually, you know, pieces, they sort of, uh, you're pushing it and it's moving and it's getting really strong and you cannot change where it's going. Pieces in the past I've had to crush and open them up to be able to achieve the sort of shapes and forms that I was trying to do. So for me, the chaos is just in the making and just in the, I'm trying to, I've got a drawing in front of me or a thing that it's supposed to do and it just doesn't want to go there. So I'm trying to push it into that way. Plus also, I think emotionally I'm very, can be very chaotic. So if I'm not in a calm place, I don't hammer. I just don't do it. I can't sit down for that period of time and do it. I have to feel good. <laughs> to do right. It. So you have to be in a certain mood to hammer. Don't look at a piece and go, oh, I was in a filthy temper that day. That's why it looks like that. No, I just don't hammer when I'm like that because right. it goes wrong. It just does. <laughs> or I hurt my finger or thumb and stuff like that. And then sometimes, you know, especially after having two little ones, my kids, it's such a relief to go into the workshop and actually just switch off from everything else. Everything else is put away and I'm just in with the material and my thoughts and my ideas and my creativity. The chaos is out there. I come into the work and, you know, I'm able to order my thoughts, what I'm doing. I write down a lot of words and meanings and thoughts about say like a theme or if I've been doing a commission and stuff like that, I'm constantly thinking about what I'm trying to interpret in the work and stuff like that. It's like poetry in a way, sort of. And is that relatively new, this writing process? Oh, I've always done it. Yeah. And to be honest, when I look at old drawings, I keep all my drawings. I can remember what I was trying to do. I can remember thoughts, places, people. It's all in the drawings and stuff like that. I've always done that. I think it's quite important when I try and teach people um, about making, you don't have to make beautiful drawings. It's all about note making. Just get it down on paper. Just get down your ideas on paper and so you can look back at it. You may not think of it too much at the time, but you know, you can come back and think, oh, I remember that and develop it into something or whatnot. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Just to let you know, the Material Matters Fair with headline sponsor lighting specialist Bert Frank is returning to the Barge House from the 20th to the 23rd of September. Once again, each of the five floors will be doing something slightly different, but all will be related to materials. There'll also be a talks programme, some returning exhibitors, so the recycled aluminium giant Hydro will be there, as will the Wood Awards, Solid Wool, Hagen Hinderdahl, Mixed Metals and Blake Joshua, for example. And there'll also be some exciting new names, such as the Tire Collective, Biomatters, Nova Vita Design, Anna Bridgewater, also known as Abalon, Plank, Goldfinger, The Wicker Story, Jan Newman, 
and regular concrete with others to follow. There will also be a special installation from Milan-based platform Isola. If you're interested in taking part, do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. I mean, are there happy accidents? You know, you talk about the material wanting to do its own thing. And are there times when you have this drawing, but the material isn't doing what you wanted to do and you come up with something else instead? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Even like a lot of uh, test pieces, I keep a lot of that. So I think, oh yeah, I remember doing that and I pull it out again and say, okay, let's not do it this way, but let's adapt that a little bit to here or there. Can we talk about your background, Ndidi? Because your parents were from Nigeria originally. What did they do? Or what do they do? Well, my dad passed away. He wasn't really... I'm sorry. Oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, he wasn't really... As I was growing up, he wasn't really there. But my mum, actually my mum, worked in a factory in McBride's back in the day and she used to oh she used to work uh do a lot of cleaning and things like that so you know what my mom constantly worked the whole time she did night shifts and then she would get up oh have a few hours sleep and then go out cleaning and then come back and then do whatever so you know what my mom's a was a workaholic she's retired now but she always used to i don't know my mom she's quite a funny person she's always happy She's always cooking something, <laughs> not so much these days. She gets us to do it. And um, she's always talking constantly and, you know, meddling in whatnot, stuff like that. So I don't know. <laughs> she's got a beautiful energy to her. So growing up for me, it was all about work, fun, happiness, food. And that's, you know, that's, that was the gist of family and stuff like that. And were they first-generation immigrants? Yeah, they were. Yeah. Which must have been a massive culture shock, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. My mum used to tell me stories about what it was like for her growing up in Nigeria and stuff like that. And yeah. um, What was it like? Well, my grandmother lived in Ila, which is a small village. I got the opportunity to go there, actually, so I do remember. Yeah, no, she had a couple of goats in the back, and it was just like, you know, her house was literally, you know, like clay. You know, sort of like things. So I was fascinated. And there was like a chair in the wall, which was part of the building, you know, like a clay, right. like a throne thing. Yeah, it's rammed earth. It's very fashionable in architecture circles nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's this? You know, so. yeah. And then my grandmother kept on trying to feed me all the time. And then we also went to Lagos as well. So that was a different ball game altogether. Really busy, fast. I didn't like it. Too many cars and everything. Yeah, my mum used to tell me a lot of stories about Nigeria, to be honest with you. So she would fill my head with just mad madness and different characters, her family. She was actually an only child to my mum as well, which was very unusual to her mum. And uh, she used to go back every year, sort of like thing when we were younger. And then a lot of my aunties, they all came at the same time. So in Manchester, there's quite a lot of Nigerian people in Manchester. Is that why they came to Manchester? Because they knew other people were there? Kind of. I think some of them tried London and couldn't handle London. (laughs) So they moved further up north. And also, I think they came via Liverpool on boats and things like that. Even I remember my mum took me to one of these ships. And so I remember going on this massive ship in Liverpool and thinking, what is this? You know, like, because they used to get material and stuff like that. And so anyway, it was just, there's a lot of my aunties. They're not my real aunties, but my mum's friends. They were all here. We all grew up together and stuff like that. So there was quite a community of Nigerian people in Manchester. So I lived in Manchester 
All I can remember as a young person was, I want to get out of Manchester. Well, why is that? It just rained the whole time. <laughs> I mean, no, sideways rain, <laughs> just drizzle. Uh, my friends were quite energetic and stuff, and they thought I was crazy because I did art. Yeah, uh, I wasn't very academic, but I saw art as a way to get out of Manchester through study. Interesting. Tell me, was there making? Were you doing art at home? Was that encouraged by your mum? Not at all. She had right. no idea what I was doing. I said, "What to be honest with you?" When I was at high school, I had a, a brilliant teacher called Mr. K, and he. There was two of us in the whole group who were interested in art, and so he taught us everything. We did right. photography. We did, um, I don't know, uh, screen printing. We did all sorts of different types of art. So I thought, wow, this is great. And then I obviously left school with decent grades with art and design and stuff like that. Mm. And then went my high school, did design technology. Yeah, I don't know. We were just drawing and doing all sorts of things. I read somewhere that you were raised on a diet of Lowry, the artist. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. As was I, funny enough, because my parents, they met in Manchester, and I bought single matchstalk men and matchstalk cats and dogs by Brian and Michael when I was a child. And Lowry was about the only artist my father could relate to. But I'm kind of intrigued by that. Is there a tension between your Nigerian heritage? And let's face it, there's not much that's Nigerian about Lowry, the kind of scenes that Lowry painted. No, you know what? For Because it was there accessible and the the, um, the paintings were here. You know what? I looked at that and I thought, wow, you know, the different layers, the texture in the paintings and the re you could see Manchester in it. For me, that was like, oh my God, this is actually real. This was here. I could even see the movement in the paintings then. Yeah, it was just real, just absolutely real. And Manchester can be quite dirty and gritty. It still has that edge to it. So you can see that in Lowry's work, to be honest. And as a young person, I used to go to all sorts of different, whatever art was out there, the different museums, whatever shows I used to go all the time. I'd go by myself. I didn't need anybody to take me. I just I just used to do that. That was the thing I enjoyed doing, really. And your mum knew all about this? No. Nope. She knew about Not your at all. Fetish. Not no. at all. <laughs> She, you know, she, my mum was like, yeah, she trusted me as a young person. I could just go out and do what I, what I wanted to. I'd tell her where I was going and things. She, she, was, she was like, you know, and uh, it was always like that. Um, for me, my art journey is a case of get up and go and see what, what's out there. What did she think of you going on to study three-dimensional design at Wolverhampton, well, Polytechnic, as it was then. Yeah. Well, it was a university when we actually got there. Oh, was it? Okay. It literally just changed to a university. Ah. So it was all very new, all very fresh. She just liked the fact that I was studying. Wolverhampton had a great three-dimensional design course at the time. Everybody was making huge bits of furniture, steel. The teachers were doing their own work as well. So they would show us different techniques. I mean, amazing techniques in jewellery, in furniture making, in welding, in all sorts of stuff. And that's where I sort of like got into silversmithing, really. I was going to ask, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do at that stage? Not at all. Right. It was all about the tools and what they could do for you. So in my first contact with silversmithing, I didn't even know it was silversmithing, let's put it that way. I just saw the tools all hung up in the soundproof room. 
and the logs and all the different things. And I thought I can use these to manipulate metal. And that's what I started to do there. My tutor knew exactly what I was doing, obviously. And so he turned me up some hammers, some big wooden hammers, because I started to work in big sheets of metal. So he actually made me some hammers. That was it. Nobody saw me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you remember the first time that you applied a hammer to metal and, and how that made you feel? Yeah, it was copper as well. So it was like, it would just moved. It just, my thing at the beginning was see how thin you could get it before it would split. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was chasing into these big forms that I was making and stuff. Chasing. Chasing. We're going to jargon bust again. (laughs) Chasing. Chasing. You use a repousse hammer, which has got a, the bit that you hold in your hand is quite bulbous. The head of the hammer is quite heavy and it's flat and that makes contact with a punch, a chasing punch. You sort of like run the punch along the metal with the hammer, tap, 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 tap. You can make lines into it. So right. I used to draw patterns onto my metal forms, the massive forms I used to make. And then I used to chase into it. Mm. That was it. Hours of headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody would see me. <laughs> if you wanted to find me, I was in the soundproof room. Basically. And so by the time you left Wolverhampton, were you certain you wanted to be a, a, an artist in metal? Was that what you were going to do? Absolutely. And I remember taking photographs of the work I had myself and sending them out to all these galleries. <laughs> and they oh, they sent me the most beautiful letters back saying, oh, yeah. we love your work. And da, da, da. But sorry, we don't, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. They'd never seen anything mm. like that before. So they're like, um, not sh- you know, beautiful work, keep on going. And then um, I went to Bishop's Land. I applied yes. to Bishop's Land. I was going to ask you about Bishop's Land. So what is Bishop's Land? And why was it so important to you? Bishop's Land is an educational trust and we were the second year of it starting. I think that's it. We did new designers. So I don't know if you remember new designers. I don't know if it's still. I do. I I, I visit every year since about 1995. (laughs) (laughs) The exhibitors always stay the same age while I'm always a year older. It's it's a little bit frustrating (laughs) if I'm honest with you. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to go again. I tell you, we exhibited there and that's where I heard of Bishop's Land. I actually right. missed her sort of like talk, her uh, Penelope McCower and Oliver McCower. They did a talk and I missed it, but I applied anyway. You apply for a residency for a year. So you live at Bishop's Land and you work as a jeweler or a silversmith. You lived there for a whole year? I lived there for a year. Wow. Uh, had an interview, got in, and a group of us, jewelers and silversmiths, I think I was the only silversmith actually, we all lived there for a year and pretended like we were running a business. <laughs> mm. And is it quite regimented while you're there? Do you have to be up at a certain times, you breakfast together and stuff like no, that? No, it work? wasn't like that. I mean, no. okay. you had our own kitchens and things like that. It wasn't like a, a school or anything. But um, <laughs> But we wanted to make, so we would be up early making doing our thing, you know, learning techniques, because obviously they used to do masterclasses. So that's where I met Rod Kelly. Yeah, so people would come in and teach us things. And then we tried to do exhibitions as well. While I was at Bishopsland, I wasn't able to make as much as I did when I was at my university because the facilities were smaller and it was there I started to work in silver. So that was the first time you'd worked in silver when you went to Bishopsland? Absolutely. And um, the first time I had a few commissions as well. Well, you got one from Winchester Cathedral, right? While I was there, yeah. For an ablution cup. And a bowl. 
Am I right in thinking that was your first commission? Uh, no, uh, I made a commission, first of all, I think it was a bowl, if I can remember, for a family member for a birthday. Right. And then after that, the ablutions, bowl and a jug at Winchester. That was a commission mm. and stuff like that. I was new with silver, a bit shy with silver, but yeah, designed and made. Yeah, the pieces there. And was it very different from the metals you'd worked with before? Definitely, yeah. I was scared yeah. almost of silver at that stage. Why? Because it was so expensive? No, or, no, or... melted a few bits. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't like copper where you could just (laughs) never really thought about the um, cost of it as well because it's more expensive i didn't think about that if you don't look after silver it kind of tears it kind of um just doesn't like it you know you have to look after the silver as you are making a piece i got to know quite quickly Mm. (laughs) Mm. and from bishop's land after your year were you always going to go to the Royal College of Art? Was that always the ambition? I didn't even know about Royal College of Art. It was Pope who yeah. encouraged me to apply. So I didn't even know what it was going to be like and things. And Rod Kelly as well says, he because he went there, he was like, you've got to apply. You know, you can have a great time. So we applied and we got in. A couple of us there got in. And um, yeah, it was great. That department was being run by David Watkins at the time, yeah. a renowned jeweller, I think. So how did that affect your work? It was uh, a game changer in a way. They had a metal sort of like thing so we could use big bits of silver, quite basically. Right. He used to bring amazing artists in. Michael Rowe was also there. Wendy Ramshaw was there. Right. People used to just come in and teach us stuff and we were just making like crazy. Also production as well. So they also identified whether we want to be a designer as well as a maker and things like that. Mm. You know, they tried to channel us into whatever we were trying to do, really. You never wanted to go into production? I tried. There was too much control. I wish I did at the time. Now, looking back, I wish I did. Oh, why's that? Just to be able to make more. I think my ambition was always to make more so that everybody could access it. Mm. But I didn't know enough about it back then. I was trying to combine metal with glass I mean, I made some really good pieces, but I didn't understand production as such. So when did this, um, these kind of fluid forms that we're talking about, this liquidity in your work, was that already there when you're at the Royal College or when did that emerge? No, it was always there right from the beginning of working in metal. It just changed and evolved and things and developed quite basically. So it was always there. You know, I was looking at the Benin bronzes when I was at Wolverhampton, that was the sort of books we were looking at and things like that. So I was thinking, how do I get that sort of texture? How do I get that color? How do I get that shape? And then for me, it was like these forms, how do I make these forms move? How do I get my shapes to move in this? How do I get the metal to go back on itself? And then with the silver and the function, there was a bit more control, definitely, without a doubt. The work became more refined, more controlled, but also still playing with whatever ideas I was coming up with at the time. Mm. And so after all college, you stayed in London for years. I think you, were, you had a student yeah. at Cockpit in yeah. Deptford, the renowned Makers Workshops. Moved back to Manchester in 2018. Yes. Why? Because you hate Manchester, right? The rain goes sideways. You said this. <laughs> what brought you back? Well, I left London because I got married. And so my husband wasn't, he didn't want to move to London. So we moved to Surrey. 
and then the kids more help with kids right <laughs> i've okay. got more family up here and they're younger as well so they can help with them so it was more practical than anything I probably forgotten that it rained sideways. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are talking like 20 plus years, but um, I look at Manchester in a different angle. I'm still trying to get used to being back here, to be honest with you. The city itself has changed enormously in 20 years, right? Thank I goodness. Mean, it's, it's almost yeah. a different place. Yeah, it's very creative. It's very gritty. Yeah. It's very real. It's very artistic. There's some amazing people it's got a real energy to it that you can't buy that. So I'm getting used to it. And then my workshop now is in a nice building. It, well, it's an old cotton mill, but the energy there is quite fantastic. It's lovely. Last year, you were in an exhibition at Sotheby's called Brilliant and Black in DD. I'm kind of interested, has the rise of Black Lives Matter changed the way you think about your work? I found an essay by Cork O'Connell about a punch bowl and ladle that you made in 1999. And she said the piece, and I'm going to quote here, personifies the politics of black lives in this ever-changing climate. Going on to write, I imagine Ikubia hammering the metal to rid it of its colonial internalities, like a drum producing sound, a hammer producing its own language. The blowtorch is a final touch, burning any remaining colonial residue away. Do you recognise that kind of sentiment, I wonder? Does that resonate with you? Um, Probably... Not directly. I think naturally doing the work all these years, let me use my name as an example, actually. Sure. My name is Indidi. So when somebody say, oh, what's your name? I'd say Indidi. So I'd say, yes, Indidi. And I I would say it like that because a lot of people wouldn't be able to pronounce my name quite basically. And I'd Mm. say it to them, Indidi. But they'd be like, mm, you know, you know, they would not be able to pronounce my name. So I started to say, yes, indeedy. So it's indeedy, it's indeedy. But if you talk to my mum, it's indeedy. That's how you pronounce mm. it. So in a way, I was sort of adapting the way I would talk to people to fit in, if you understand what I mean. As an adult now and doing all the things that I've done, I don't do that anymore. My name is Ndidi and I'm, you know, spend that time to try and explain who I am, where I'm from. Before I didn't ever used to think about it. I never used to think about the work and where, what the background is and stuff. I wouldn't explain that part of it. I would just say, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is where I'm from. Do you understand what I mean? It's, mm. it's like there was no excuses. She's explaining, seeing my work and saying, oh, banging on a drum. No, it's not. It's just a rhythm of what I have been taught, the energy that I have been taught. My mum is very powerful. She doesn't go, oh, you know, be quiet. You know, absolutely not. She's out there saying who she is. This is African food. It tastes different. And so I've spent all these years, hi, I'm in Didi. <laughs> look at the work pick it up don't be shy you know when I'm teaching be don't hold back hit the wood first before you hit the metal you know what I mean just kind of like a lot of people hold back from who they really are yeah so I don't do that the work doesn't do that the work is what it is it's what I do 
it is part of my history. It's part of my mum's history. I wouldn't sort of uh, talk about colonial, I can't even say the word, you know what I mean? I wouldn't even talk (laughs) about that because I don't know enough information about that. I can tell you about my mum's point of view and how it has has affected her. Mm. But How has it affected her? How has it affected her? She is a go-getter. She has thought to herself, I'm not staying in Nigeria. I'm going to come here. I'm going to learn. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring up my children. I'm going to let them live and show them how to be caring and loving and do things in life. You know what I mean? She's going to give us opportunities. So that's the well, that's what she has done, really. And then when she sort of criticises what's happening back home, she criticises what's happening here. So she sees it as a whole picture, if that makes any sense. Mm. So what you're saying is your work hasn't changed it's part of you and it's always been the same but possibly the way people are interpreting it might have changed absolutely might be changing yeah i'm wondering how you feel about that does that bother you do you mind how people interpret your work no not at all i think that conversation with any art is good and you should see how it affects you you know some people like this some people like that you know Mm. that's what it's there for really when I was first involved in silver, people don't touch it. It's in a glass container. You know what I mean? <laughs> I never understood that. The objects I make, pick it up. What is it? What does it do? How does it feel? Use it. You know, don't waste it, use it. So that for me is really quite important. So when people say, oh, I use it all the time, that's what I was meant to do. The other name that comes up a lot when I'm reading about you on the internet is Adrian Sassoon, your gallerist. His name has cropped up on a number of occasions on this podcast over the years. And I'm just wondering how important he has been to your career. Adrian and his team are amazing. They have allowed me to make what I want and show people what I can do. That's all they've ever done. They don't influence how what I do. They take it and show it. So it's a case of they take what they like they show what they like and they work so well. They really understand contemporary art. They've allowed me to make big pieces in silver as well. You know, they've allowed me to be able to show it and have a have a, an audience for that. When you have a relationship with a gallery like that, do they suggest pieces you might want to make or let you know how the market is going? Or is it just a question of you doing what you do and they take what they want? Absolutely. As it were. Absolutely. Yeah. They just allow you to be creative. They've allowed me to be creative, honestly. They're not the only ones as well, but they are the main ones. I can mention Style Silver in Hungerford. He would see the pieces that he would be able to sell and just take it on board and show his clients and stuff like that. They're, they're like, go for it. <laughs> Don't worry too much. And that's that's the way it is, which is great for me. Definitely. Yep. You know, I don't have to think, oh God, it's got to do this and it's got to do, I don't, I just make it and hope for the best. Well, I wonder if, if you have a sense of the market, whether you make a piece and you go, well, this one, this one's a seller, or this is going to be difficult to find an audience. Does that occur to you when you're creating? No. Maybe with, maybe. You're shaking your head at me. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? I've been, I, people probably said to me, you know, Didi, you should be aware and you should do this and do that. I have been very naughty and I've just done it the way I know how to do it. The worst thing about probably, or not the worst thing, but the one thing I have always done is made what I wanted to make, which is probably not the best way to run a business. 
It's not a bad way to live a life, though. Well, I'm, I'm very happy in myself and stuff like that. Mm. And I know what I would like to do next and things like that. But I've reacted to commissions, obviously, always from when I started to make. So I've done my commissions. I loved working with people, tried to get what they want. But then with the vessels and things and the objects, I just make what I want to make, to be honest with you. Mm. It may change. I'm not going to say it's always going to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, and Didi, our time is nearly up. So it's the final question, which is what your plans for the future might be. What can we expect from you next? You've got Mirror Mirror at Chatsworth, which goes on a while, but what's next? I have tried to think about whether I was going to do any exhibitions like uh, Goldsmith's Fair and things like that. I did not. So at the moment, what I'm trying to do is make new work. So I am trying things like teapot. I am trying things like larger objects. I'm doing an exhibition with Scottish gallery later on in the year but it's only like miniatures that we're going to be making and things like that so I'm not really doing any exhibitions like mirror mirror to be honest with you I'm just going to spend time this year getting my creative outlets and react to commissions and that's all I'm going to do this year I'm not going to even go there next year I'll be able to do like trade shows and things like that and the rest of it very good so Scottish gallery and then we'll have to wait till next year seems to be the the general gist yeah, I mean, there'll be work out there. So I'll do things that I'm asked to do. Oh, yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, Bishop's Land have got a 30-year exhibition in Goldsmiths Hall in June. So I'll be making work for that. That's probably one of the major things that I'll be doing. Okay, well, we will look out for June. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. That All was right. wonderful. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciated All it. Right, Thoroughly then. enjoyed myself. Take care. Bye. To find out more about Ndidi, go to ndidiacubia.com. Meanwhile, Mirror Mirror runs at Chatsworth House until the 1st of October 2023. My thanks go to the series and headline sponsor, the brilliant lighting specialist Bert Frank. You can find out more about them at bertfrank.co.uk. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, materialmatters.design. You can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to our newsletter and lots of other stuff at materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message, the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.